Welcome to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, good evening, everybody. Are you doing all right tonight? Welcome to the Sunday night service. Those of you that are new, my name's Pastor Glenn Packy. I'm the pastor for this service, this campus. We're in the middle of this series on the supernatural. And, uh, you know, normally, right before the sermon, we have communion and confession and all this stuff. And there's a moment where we recite together the Nicene Creed. Uh, We're not doing that this week. We'll do communion and confession and prayer at the end of the talk tonight, just as James mentioned. Which, by the way, didn't you think James Martin did a fabulous job with joy time tonight? Well done, James. Well done. Um, yeah, so, so we'll do that at the end. But, you know, when we recite the creed, the Nicene Creed is, this, is this, this thing that was written at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And it was written at a point when there was a little bit of disagreement that was starting to happen. Uh, Christianity had spread far enough throughout different regions of the world that there were some people that were sort of saying, hey, we think this and we think this. And they'd sort of they'd veered away quite a bit from, from some of the things that the apostles had taught and written and said. And so th- there was this council was called to say, okay, wait a second. Let's make sure that we don't uh, lose the things that the apostles taught. You remember in the book of Acts it says they gathered together and they followed the apostles' doctrine and all this stuff. It was a very important that they, that they uh, preserved those things. So this Nicene Creed, talking about what we believe about God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the church and all that stuff. We say that every week because that forms for us the core beliefs, the things that we hold with a closed hand, as it were, about our faith. They are the things that if we were to sort of say, ah, I don't know if I believe that and I'm not so sure about that. If we started to let go of some of those things, it'd be difficult to say that we were genuinely Christ followers. Now, there's loads of other things, however, not mentioned in the creeds, that there's room for some dis- discussion, responsible discussion. Uh, we live in the age of, of blogging and, and Twitter and Facebook, and so there's, all, there's discussion happening all the time. It's just not always responsible discussion. Uh, everybody has an opinion and now has a platform for that opinion, you know? I, I, was, uh, we, we, I wondered this week if Twitter is really sort of our new 21st century version of a bumper sticker, you know? Uh, we used to have opinions, and then we put it, find it in a little slide and stick it on the, you know, the back of our car. Now we can send it out to cyberspace and other people can pass it on and retweet it and it just gets, takes on a life of its own. So it's fine to have opinions, but we need to be responsible about why we believe certain things. And that's what this series is about. We're trying to say, okay, wait a second, what is it we believe about this? And, and last week we said, okay, maybe on the one side there's people that say, you know what, miracles were, were, were for an age, it was for a season, and it's not so much for now, and, 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 and you know, it, it, it was important in that day, but it doesn't have play, serve a purpose now, so we don't have any of it. But on the other hand, you have believers that would insist that, listen, miracles ought to be the norm, that this ought to be sort of our normal state of life, that every time you pray for someone, they must and should get healed. And if they don't, then there's probably something wrong with their faith or something wrong with, with their life or sin and all of that. And we started last week at what I believe is the most important starting point in this discussion by, by talking last week about what is it that we believe to be fundamentally true about God. Is it true that God is some sort of a sadist up in heaven that says, yeah, I want to see you. No, is that true? No. 
And we said, okay, wait a second. Look, if his original design, if his original intent for creation did not include sickness and suffering and disease, then that's not ultimately what he wants for us. Furthermore, we said, okay, wait a minute. Look at his final outcome in heaven. There's none of this. There's none of this sickness or suffering or disease. You say, okay, wait a second, how does God do it? How does he reverse the effects of the curse and the fall and undo it all so that we know the future that's coming is one that doesn't include death or suffering or disease? How does God do it? And last week we said, look, in a word, Jesus. By Jesus entering into our suffering so that because of Jesus, God can say, I know what it feels like to agonize over the death of a friend. I know what it feels like to be betrayed. I know what it feels like to be thirsty, to be hungry, to ache, to suffer, to have a body break down. He actually knows what that's like because of Jesus. But more than that, we talked last week about how because of Jesus, in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, God made the way for the restoration of all things. And when we talk about God being a healer, we're not simply saying, okay, you know, listen, migraine's got to be gone, this has got to be gone, this has got to be gone. What we're saying is God's ultimate plan is to remake the cosmos, is to restore all things, is to make it so that there's not a world where injustice happens, where children get sold into sex slavery, where everything that's broken and sick and diseased about the world will one day be made whole. And we talked about this phrase, the kingdom come already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And that's difficult for us because we, we, our logic sometimes is a little too simple. And we say, well, look, if it's paid for, then I got to have it now. And we say, well, listen, if Jesus paid for it, then I proclaim it and I claim it and I demand it and I receive it. And all of this sort of talk. But we understand that just because a thing is paid for doesn't mean all of it happens here and now. And we talked about the example of Christmas Day, that if you bought your kid a bike, no child in their right mind would come to you as a parent and say, Dad, you paid for my bike. That's right. Well, I receive my bike now, but it's December 1st. But I receive it, Dad. You paid for it. True, I paid for it. But it's not Christmas Day. And in a similar way, the fullness, the culminating finished picture of what God had in mind and what God accomplished through Jesus is coming. The reason why we as believers can have hope in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering and in the midst of difficulties because we believe with all of our hearts that what's coming is better than what is. And that even when we pray and we say, God, do miracles, God breaks through, God, we want to see healings, God, we want you, even as we pray all those things, yet we know deeper inside our hearts this assurance, this confidence that says, even if the most dramatic miracle were to occur, there's still a death that's coming, but see, beyond that death is a life that will never end. And that is the power of the kingdom coming in its fullness. But tonight we're going to talk about, all right, so what do we do in the here and now? We live in the here and now and we live in this tension of saying, okay, great. It's good to set our minds right, to know that ultimately God is good and to know that ultimately God is for our health or healing or restoration, whichever word you may use, that ultimately we have to be convinced about God's goodness and his ultimate design and intention for us. Okay, you say, oh, great. Thanks a lot, Glenn. But that doesn't help me navigate the here and now. What do I do 
about now. Because I think there's a couple of ways to handle this. So, all right, well, based on last week's talk, then I guess I'm going to sort of live, uh, you know, kind of this que sera, sera, you know, well, I mean, whatever it will be, will be. If it's the Lord's will, it's the Lord's will. And I'll just sort of, you know, kind of try to grin and bear it and try to make the most of it, and it'll be okay. Or we say, well, I, you know what, we, we've got to, then, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to live fighting and, and pressing it and rebuking and binding and doing all this. And that gets exhausting after a little while. But what is it we should do? I want us to understand that as we talk about this tonight, we're not talking about steps in a formula. This isn't a recipe. We have a tendency to take any list and turn it into an equation. We have a tendency to say, oh, well, you see this element, you see the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, and we string together a few of our favorite Bible verses, and we say, look, therefore the equation is this. But the Eastern mind is a little bit different than our linear logical progression. There's something larger we're supposed to catch. And I want us to talk tonight about, there's, there's a few things, three or four things that we're going to talk about that Scripture says, look, when you're, when you're sick, when you're needing a miracle, when you're wanting God to break through, these are the things to have in your heart, in your life. But it's not, it's not given to us as a formula. It's, in fact, it's not given to us as a guarantee. So well, why do we do it then? I think we do it out of obedience. And out of, at the end of the day, the surest expression of faith is obedience. What's the best way to demonstrate that you believe something? You do it. You act accordingly. You say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I mean, I, there's more to this than I understand. There's more mystery to this. But, but we're told to sort of do this. The other thing I want to kind of mention right up top before we go into any sort of list is this. It's not wise to hear these things tonight and have somebody in your mind who's sick or suffering and say, you see, I'm going to tell them this is what they need to be doing. I know that you're loving and kind and you care so much about people, but there's a way of expressing that that doesn't come across like care. It doesn't come across as love. And you say, wait, okay, wait, I, I heard the sermon last week. And listen, I'm telling you, what you need to do is you need to da 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 And the other person's like, yeah, that's not helping me right now. It, it may be that the, the person who's facing uh, an illness or, or uh, has a loved one that's facing a disease that's incurable, it may be that the thing that they need from you is just for you to sit with them, cry with them, laugh with them, be with them. I think the best thing to do with what we talk about tonight is to say, Holy Spirit, is there something in my heart, in my life, that I need to lay hold of these things? Generally, that's a good rule with sermons, to be thinking about yourself more than someone else. Generally, that's a good rule. And I, but especially, I think, when we talk about this, because it turns into meanness very quickly. Or we accuse you and we say, well, have you done that? Maybe you haven't been, have you done this thing? Have you had the oil and the elders bit, you know? Like, what? And, uh, and it's important that we don't do that with this tonight. I want to start with Luke 18, verse 1 uh, through 8. This is the parable of the persistent widow. And, um, you know, it's an interesting parable. Well, let's read it. 
Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to them with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men. Now, clearly Jesus is trying to help us see who this judge is. It's not trying to uh, portray for us an accurate dialogue because not many people would say, now even though I don't fear God and care about me. You know, but Jesus is telling, he's creating this character to help us see clearly in our minds just what kind of judge this is. Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To, to, to try to really enter this story and to understand it and to kind of feel the emotions that are involved here, it's important to understand that uh, the, the predicament of women in Jesus' day, they were very much dependent on, upon someone else uh, to, to provide for them. Uh, if a woman had lost her husband, as is the case with this woman, a widow, uh, she, was, she was dependent upon others to provide for her. First of all, family members of her husband. In fact, the Old Testament gives very clear instructions. Look, if your husband dies, and this is what you know, the, 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 your, your husband's family is supposed to do, and all this stuff. And there's different provisions for this widow. It's not like our society where a, a woman who's on her own could just go get a job and provide for herself relatively, with relative ease, I guess. But back in those days, there was just no option for that. So here's a woman with no other option for taking care of herself. She's stuck. Moreover, the system is somehow being abused. It's not working right. And so she's appealing to the judge. Tell it to the judge. She's like, yeah, I am. And the judge doesn't want to listen. And, and so, okay, so we, so we get this feeling. And the other thing is that we have to catch about this story is there is this, there is this rabbinic device, this technique used by a lot of rabbis in the first century and beyond that, that, that says it's sort of the how much more technique. It's, it's the way of telling something by saying, look, I'm going to tell you some situation, I'm going to describe a situation in order to make the point that how much more is God like this? Jesus himself does it in Luke 11. He says, look, uh, if, if, if you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. We read the Matthew 7 version of it. But in the Luke version of it, Jesus says, look, if, you, you, if your kid asks you for bread, you, you're not going to give him a stone. If they ask you for fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If you who are evil know how to do this, how much more. Does your father know how to do this? It's a technique that compares two things that are not at all alike, two things that are quite different, quite the opposite from each other in order to prove a point, to emphasize the differences, okay? When Jesus tells this parable of an unjust judge, he's not saying that God is unjust. In fact, it's this technique, it's this device to say, look, if even an unjust judge would give in to this widow just because she keeps wearing him out, how much more would your father hear you? But I think Jesus may be zeroing in on something a little deeper. I think he may be putting his finger on this wound inside of the Jews of his day where they felt like 
God was unjust. And you wonder if Jesus uses this, this example to kind of say, hey, isn't it true that you believe that God is not just? Isn't it true that you think because you're suffering under the Romans and before the Romans you suffered under the Syrians and all these other nations that you suffered, isn't it true that because God hasn't rescued Israel and restored Israel as a nation, isn't it true that because none of that has happened for hundreds of years, your prayers haven't been answered, isn't it true that you started to feel like he is not just? The way that Jesus ends this parable maybe gives us the most insight. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Our first thing tonight to talk about what we can cultivate in our hearts when we're saying, God, I need you to break through, I want you to break through, is this. It's faith. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. I think so much of our contemporary discussion and teaching on faith, particularly from people who come through our television set, most of our contemporary talk about faith is so connected to a desired outcome. The only time we talk about faith is when we're asking for a specific result. God, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, I believe, I believe, I believe, that's going to happen. God, I believe, that's going to happen. God, I believe, that's going to happen. And everything we know about faith is connected to a result. But the way Jesus describes faith in this parable, it's, yes, there's a result involved, but even larger than that, there's the issue of what do you believe about God? Is he an unjust judge? I think that if we have this opinion of God that he's, oh, he doesn't care and he's heartless and he's not just that there's no way we would find ourselves persevering in prayer. There's no way we would ask and keep asking and pray and keep praying if we become all of a sudden calloused in our hearts and begin to believe slowly that, I don't think you're just. I don't think it's fair. Charles Dickens says that the first thing kids sort of realize or respond to with the most amount of emotion. He said it much better than what I'm saying, how I'm saying it now, but is the sense of injustice. He says it in Great Expectations, talking about this feeling kids have at a very young age that, hey, no fair. I hear it all the time in my house. No fair. Hey, no fair. Hey, no fair. And it's okay to lament to God and say, life is unfair, that situation's unfair, that's, you know, but it's another thing to sort of start believing that you are unfair. And to start saying, ah, you're unjust. And I wonder if Jesus with this parable is trying to say, look, look, how, if I'm going to find faith on the earth, then the faith has to be connected to a person, not a result. And you have to be convinced in who I am, what kind of person I am. I think that our persistence in prayer is directly related to what we believe about God. Our persistence in prayer is directly related to what we believe about God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Not have faith for this outcome. Have faith for this result. Have faith for that specifically. Listen, it doesn't take you very long in the Christian life to know that if you're in prayer because you're addicted to results, you'll be out of prayer pretty quickly. It's not why we pray. 
We don't pray because we're obsessed with results or fixated on outcomes. We pray because we have this conviction that God is good and God is just. And because of that, I persist. I pray. I have faith in God. I understand that when you're dealing with something week after week, month after month, year after year, that that it's easy to say, I am done. I'm done praying for this. I'm done asking. I understand that. And I'm not suggesting that your prayer about whatever the request is needs to be the same all the time. I think when a person faces, and I've seen this with, with some of my closest friends, when you get the news of some disease or some situation, you say, oh my gosh. The first instinct is we're going to fight, and we're going to pray, and we're going to fight. And your early prayers are all prayers of warfare. They're all prayers of fighting. But after some time, months, years, you get tired of fighting. And I'm not asking you or suggesting that to have faith in God means you're always praying warfare prayers and you're always attacking, you're always mustering up the fight. No. But I do think it means that our prayer life becomes shaped by this faith, this conviction, this confidence in God's goodness. Does that make sense? We have faith in God, a person, not an outcome. The object of our faith is a person, not an outcome. So I'm able to pray because not every prayer is fighting and binding and whatever. Some prayer is just, God, help. God, grace today, strength today, help. Faith, keep my faith in you. The second piece of this that we see in the scriptures is the idea of asking. And this is the verse we read as the New Testament reading. Here it is in the NIV. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. For which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, uh, though you are evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It wouldn't be consistent with the rest of the New Testament to suppose that what Jesus meant is everything we ask for, we receive. We certainly know that that's not consistent with what the New, Te- rest of what the New Testament says. It's certainly not consistent with the stories of the men and women in Scripture. But asking, as Dallas Willard says, is the way of the kingdom. It's the way we're supposed to go about things. Not demanding Neither is it begging, but it's asking. And here's what I'm trying to get to in my own life is to say, okay, if my faith in God has led me to believe this confidence in God's character, this trust in his love, then I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask, but because this asking comes out of a faith in his character and a trust in his love, then again, even the asking is not obsessed with the specific results. But the asking is sort of bathed in this context of, I'm asking the Father who loves me. 
Now, if you think you're asking a father who doesn't love you, then your asking is going to be funny. And if you think you're asking a God who's unjust, then your asking is going to be funny. And if you're asking a person that you think is tight-fisted and cold-hearted, then your asking is going to be funny. But if you're asking, if the faith part is right, you've got this right image of God, our Father, then your asking is to a loving Father, then I think the asking takes on the right tone. It says, God, you said to ask. Here we are, your kids. We're going to ask. And we're going to keep asking. And we're going to keep asking. And we're going to ask again. And we're going to ask again. And we're going to ask again. The third thing that we, we kind of see, particularly in the, in the Gospels, but throughout the Scriptures as well, is this idea of the, of the spiritual issues, you know, address the spiritual issues maybe is a way to word it for tonight. Address the spiritual issues. What, what does that mean? Um, I want to read you Luke 13, verse 1 through 5. I find this to be a very interesting passage. Now there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And you're thinking, what in the world, what's going on? He's talking about Galileans that Pilate had killed, okay? And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Here again is Jesus putting his finger at what they really thought and saying, you think they got killed, you think they got slaughtered because they're sinners. But do you think they're worse sinners than all the others? Because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Yikes. And then he says, oh, oh those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. This is kind of some, you know, architectural crisis in the first century, you know. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now stop here for a second because... Jesus is correcting a way of thinking that suggests that every catastrophe and every suffering is caused by someone's sin. Now, I don't know what kind of, kind of conversations you have, but it seems like every time there's a major hurricane or even the events of 9-11, we're so quick to kind of say, well, listen, I know that happened because there's sin. Okay, maybe, but isn't there sin in you too? I don't see a hurricane chasing you, you know, like... I mean, I think it's rather self-righteous to kind of say, ah, they're suffering because of their sin. But you know, I'm guilty of this too. I I think there's something about us that we want to comfort ourselves when we see someone else suffering. We want to assure ourselves that that's not going to happen to us. And the way that we comfort ourselves is by explaining how they sort of brought that on themselves. You ever done that? You know, you read a headline in a newspaper about a, a stabbing or a shooting, and you're like, oh, well, that's that part of town, you know. Then, you know, I don't think we can say that anymore at New Life, right? We, we, it's, it's come to our campus. We understand the bizarre nature of a fallen world and the things that happen as a result of that. But there's something strange in us that we see somebody else's pain and someone else's suffering, and we kind of distance ourselves from it like, oh, well, that, I mean, oh, man, I feel bad for them. But that is not going to happen to me. See, I eat right. I, you know, I do all these things, you know. There's this part in, in, in uh, Great Expectations where um, Dickens describes these two people at the funeral of, of uh, Pip, the narrator, Pip's sister. 
And he says the two of them were talking uh, as if they were a totally different race from the deceased. As if they were a totally different race and as if they were themselves notoriously immortal. I love that phrase. Notoriously immortal. And we do that. We insulate ourselves from the pain around us and the suffering by telling ourselves that oh, that, we, we are different. We are not like that. We are notoriously immortal. We're of a totally different race. That is, uh, that, yeah. And that's a different version of kind of saying, oh, that happened to them because of this, or that happened to them because of this. What's interesting is the way Luke continues in his narrative because he, talk, he has Jesus saying that, and then he goes on and tells this story in Luke 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who was there had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days. The gall. Come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? I think it's interesting the way Luke puts these stories together. He tells us this one story of Jesus saying, you, want to, you think that those people are suffering because of their sin. And then he tells this other story a few verses later of this woman where Jesus clearly says it's Satan who's kept her bound. Sometimes, and again, this is not a formula, this is not a method, this is not a thing that we can say take to the bank, you know, but sometimes there are things that we say, you know what, that is a peculiarly demonic thing. Something about that that is keeping that person uh, bound up like that. that That's blatantly satanic. We need to address that. We need, we, let's, let's, let's rebuke that. Let's bind that. But I think on a larger scale, we can also say that it is Satan himself who's the author of all suffering and torture and disease and sickness. And Jesus said, look, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's, 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 that's what he does. I come to give life, the full extent of life inside. And so there's a sense in which we need to understand, okay, if Satan is kind of the one who, even from the beginning, is trying to destroy the human race and trying to warp God's creation, and trying, if that's true, you say, well, there is a sense in which sin is a way of cooperating with Satan. There's many ways to kind of describe sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is not obeying. Sin is, you know, but in some ways, sin is also saying, I, I think I'm going to cooperate with the devil's rebellion against God. I think I, too, am going to live independently of God. That's sort of signing up for the wrong team. And because of that, sin itself, in its very essence, I think, sin is self-destructive. It's destructive. All sin is destructive. It doesn't mean that all sin leads to sickness or that all sickness is caused by sin. But on a large, wide-angle lens, we need to know that sin in its nature is destructive. 
It will destroy you from the inside out. And there are many times that its destruction shows up in the form of sickness or disease. We can think of certain lifestyle choices or behavior choices that lead to certain uh, things about our body breaking down. We, 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 we make those connections. We see those. Okay. So if there is a sense in which Satan is the author of all that is wrong and sick and that sin is a way of cooperating with his rebellion from God, then if I'm here and I'm saying, God, I, I, I want you to do something in my life, and I, it, be, it wouldn't be a bad thing to say, God, is there something I'm not realizing? Is there something I'm, I'm holding on to? Is there some grudge? Is there some unforgiveness? Is there something that I, you know, need to repent and confess? And I'm not talking about some weird thing that you didn't consciously do, you know, like, oh, I accidentally you know, brought in some magic, whatever, and it, you know, I'm not, that stuff, okay, maybe, but, but I think the stuff that's maybe more obvious is the stuff where we willfully persist in, in sin, in unforgiveness, in, in grudges, and things like that, and it somehow shows up in our body not working quite right. I'm not a doctor, um, but I, I know that there are instances of what we call psychosomatic cases, this link between body and soul, this link between the anguish heart, this, this feeling of anger or, or guilt or whatever it is that somehow begins to show up in, in ulcers and whatever, you know, whatever. I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you that that link is 100% and I can't tell you that that link is, is airtight. But it's enough of, there's enough of this connection, if not in the micro, then at least in this macro big picture that sin is destructive that it's always the right idea to confess our sin before God. It's always the right idea. James says it this way. James 5, verse 14 to 16. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There is a reason to say, okay, if I'm, if I'm dealing with, okay, God, help me to have faith in you. Help me to believe the right things about you. And, ha- and once I, I, I've got that right, help me then to ask out of trust in your love and confidence. Help, help me to ask. And then after asking God, God, Holy Spirit, show, you know, sh- show me stuff. Am I, is there stuff that I'm doing that, that's harming myself? Is there stuff that I'm, uh, I'm hanging on to that's working destruction inside of me? And, oh God, is this, a, is this a particular sort of attack from the devil that we just need to you know, rebuke? Or is this a, a headache caused by not drinking enough water and living at 7,000 feet above sea level, you know? I bind you, altitude headache. Well, just drink water, you know. <laughs> that helps too. And there's a, there's a certain mystery in discerning that that I think is the reason why James says call elders. I think he says call elders because he's saying, look, I don't want novices practicing things on you and accusing you of sin and seeing imaginary demons in your life. I don't want novices. Go call elders. And when James was talking about elders, very likely many of the people he was talking about were people who actually were part of the original ones Jesus sent out. 
And so he's kind of saying, look, call people who, who are mature, who, who, aren't, who are going to love you, but who are going to help you, who are going to pray for you, who have faith, who've seen this, who've participated in this. Does that make sense? James, interestingly enough, is also the letter that talks to us so severely about how our faith must always show up in action. That if what is real inside of us about our faith, it will eventually show up in action. And I wonder if here we are, we've come full circle in our talk because faith in God, belief in who He is, confidence in His character, trust in His love, is going to lead me to the place where I want to obey. So God, I'm tired of asking. I, I, I'm tired of even thinking about this. And I understand that there's, there's room to rest, okay? There's room to rest. There's permission to say, I'm weary. But I also think that's why we call the elders. Because we're not supposed to fight alone. We're, there's no way that you and I could persevere in something alone. We need someone else to come alongside us and say, let me lift your hands. Let me lift you up. Let me pray with you. We believe, I know you believe that God is good. I know that you've asked many, many times before. But tonight, let me do the asking with you. Ultimately, what we're, where we want to arrive is this place that says, I'm going to do this out of obedience because obedience is the best way to express faith. I'm just going to obey. I'm not fixated on results. I'm not obsessed about it. At the end of it all, God, help me to trust your love no matter what. Help me to believe that what's coming is always better than what is, even if I were to receive every answer to my prayer here and now. But God, help me. I just want to ask because you said to do it. Right? I can't get away from that can't get away from the fact that we do this because Jesus told us to do it. And James underscores it and all the, it, it's repeated for us. And so tonight, we're going to get ready to do communion. And communion is one of those places, it's one of those holy moments in a way. We come to the table of the Lord and we say, wait a second, here we are. Remembering the Lord's death, proclaiming it until he comes. What we're saying is, Jesus, I remember that you came, you shed your blood, you entered into my suffering. And Jesus, come, come, break into this situation tonight.